Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within, and like the phoenix, enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Dawn Sporczewski, a former professor of English at Brandeis University, now teaching in Amsterdam. Hear how all of the hard work to become tenured at a prestigious institution ended up creating a personal and professional crisis, forcing her to make some hard decisions that ultimately enabled her to live the life more suited. Please welcome Dawn Sporczewski. Welcome, Don, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question. And the question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? <laughs> that's so funny, Yolanda, because that's been on my mind lately as the most important question living in this world today. And I think it's a question about resilience, right? Like, So what's the worst thing that happened? And then how did you manage it? And what happened after that? That's that is my obsession, too. So I love that that is what you're. I I wonder, since I've been reading your posts on Facebook and reading about the recordings that you've been making, I wonder if I stole it from you. So if I did, I'm giving you credit now. Oh, don't worry. I would say there are a few in my life, but the most important one, especially for recent years, is I was a full professor at Brandeis University. And I had reached the top of the of the heap, right? Because I had uh, been tenured at Emerson College, as you know, because you were there. That's how I met you, which is so Yes, I was your student. You were my student, <laughs> my star student. And then I moved to Brandeis right after getting tenure at, at Emerson. I moved to Brandeis and I became an associate professor there. I came in with tenure. And then I spent a few years working on my next book, which was about Anne Sexton. And basically to get promoted, you need service and teaching, but then you also need another book. That's the most, that's the hardest piece for most people. So I published this next book about Anne Sexton in 2012. And then subsequently, I became a full professor. So there I was around 2012, becoming a full professor, and I got a Fulbright to Amsterdam to work on other hiding stories um, related to the story of Anne Frank, but not the same, like what happened to other survivors or other victims who were in hiding during the war who were not Anne Frank. That was my first question. So I took my Fulbright and my full professorship and off I went to Amsterdam. And I was working in Amsterdam and I was working at the Free University of Amsterdam. And it was just a wonderful department. I loved the people so much. I loved the chair of the department. He was a very democratic, power-sharing chair. And I really had a great time. I was just having the time of my life. And of course, Amsterdam is an amazing place, but also this institution where I was working was amazing. And I was meeting all these really interesting people. And in this situation, I realized how really unhappy I was in my tenure track job at Brandeis. I kind of knew I was already, but it felt like an atmosphere there that was not right for me. Like I didn't fit at all. I didn't feel that it was a good fit from the beginning. And it was really hard to admit that to myself because there I was at a really prestigious place. I had a really good job. The department was was filled with incredible people. 
And yet I really didn't fit. And I was directing the writing program in the English department. That was part of it. Part of it was that my style is very sort of anti-conventional in certain ways. But I, I think of myself as a more sort of free-spirited academic. I was a pretty good fit at Emerson, which is a really creative place. And I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have at the time, how absolutely wonderful that place was, because it was filled with people from very different professions coming together. There were literature professors who were really intense literature professors like Maria Condora and Wendy Walters, first-class fiction writers like Jessica Treadway, for example, a Pam Painter, who I took a class from. They were just so friendly and kind. And it was a mix. Like So there wasn't a lot of trying to get to the top of a heap in that environment. And when I was at Brandeis, we, we had much more of a homogenous department in the sense that everyone's an English professor except I was not, per se. Even though I had a PhD in English, I was the writing person. So in a lot of different ways, I didn't fit well there. And I really realized it when I was in Amsterdam. And that contributed to me becoming really more like unhappier than I had ever been, because suddenly I realized I was like not in the right place. I really didn't want to be there anymore. And I didn't know what I was going to do to get out. Can we go back to, so can you tell the audience what it is that you actually teach? Because I met you, you were teaching composition English, right? Teaching us how to teach composition English. Exactly. The pedagogy, basically, right? So I have a PhD in literature from Rutgers University, where I worked on 20th century poetry. And it was 20th century poetry about sexual violence. And it was written in the early 90s. So it was, it was right before Me Too became a thing. So that's what my degree was in. But at the same time, I was working in a really in a wonderful writing program, um, which is directed by Kurt Spellmeyer. And I was actually an administrator in that program. First, I was a writing center co-director and then I, and then a director. And then I was an assistant director to the whole program. And in that program, we learned so much about pedagogy. We took a course in it. We taught others about it. And so my next jobs were always half literature, half writing, right? So then by the time I got to Emerson, I had already been to the University of Redlands, where I was a literature professor, but also I directed the writing program. And then at Emerson, I directed the composition program. It was called Director of Composition, but I also occasionally taught courses in literature. So I was known as a person who did both fields, but I primarily at Emerson especially uh, specialized in writing. When I got to Brandeis, I directed a pretty large writing program in the department, like that was housed in the English department, but then also the writing across the curriculum program for the entire university. So it's a, it's a research one university, it's very high powered. And I taught literature classes. And so I, at the same time that I was supervising people in, in teaching writing, I also was teaching literature classes. So it was a pretty cool job in a lot of different ways. I got to design a lot of really interesting courses. And eventually I started teaching writing the Holocaust. And once I got into that field of Holocaust studies, I started to dive more and more into that, into the testimonies that I was listening to and hearing. And that area in relation to trauma became more of my area of expertise for a while. But I never let go of poetry because I wrote a book about insects and therapy tapes at the same time. And over time, I've realized that my interest in literary studies and writing studies and even in pedagogy is very much about resilience and how people deal with trauma, how people who have been traumatized or experienced very traumatic situations, how do they make it through? And it's no accident that around the time that I got my job at Brandeis, I met my, my husband, Lewis, who's a psychoanalyst. And his book, which he had just written at the same time that I wrote my book, is called Having a Life. 
So his book is uh, really about uh, different psychoanalysts, especially Jacques Lacan, and how those analysts think about people shaping a life in the aftermath of whatever happened to them. So this is kind of my life's work to think about this in terms of literary representations, also in terms of paintings recently. Yeah, but let's go back to that sort of crisis moment where your identity, which was so clearly wrapped around your profession and and the stature and accomplishments and all of that, somehow not fitting into the reality of who you are or who you wanted. And so what were the first things that you did to kind of put a stop or to have that moment of reflection where you're like, okay, I'm clearly not happy, yet I've worked so hard to reach sort of the pinnacle of my profession and my entire identity is in a way wrapped up in that professional identity. So how are you able to sort of, I guess, separate the emotional aspect, but also sort of the re-understanding of yourself. Like now you have to figure out who you are separate of this identity as a professor. Yeah, I love that way that, of articulating it and is absolutely like foreign to me because my process <laughs> is so messy. What happened is not pretty at all because what happened is I sort of descended and descended into this deep, dark depression. Like I, I went back from Amsterdam to my job and I realized how I knew now how unhappy I was and I couldn't see a way out of it. Right. Because like just hopping across the ocean and getting a job in Amsterdam seemed completely impossible to me. And at the same time, I knew that I could be so much happier. And so for a while, I tried to do things that would make it work better in my environment. And at the time I was talking to a kind of she's not like an official therapist. I had done psychoanalysis for 11 years. I went five days a week. So that's a, that's a, oh, okay. It was really wow. helpful. While I was at Emerson, while I knew you, I was doing that. And it really helped me reshape my relationship to myself, my work and to love. And I think that's part of the reason why I ended a then 12 year relationship and, and, and four years later met Lewis. Right. So that was a big shift as well. I, you know, I've had a series of these shifts, but the biggest one is the one I'm telling you about right now. But I was talking to a kind of therapist. She's a psychologist who does kind of image therapy. And she had an image of me repeatedly when I would talk to her, which was that I was at a castle and she didn't know it when we first talked, but, but Brandeis actually has a castle on its campus, right? So, so I was at this castle, which was a big castle, but had very small doors. And so she was like, you, you know, you're very tall and you can't get in the door of this castle. And all the other people there are quite short. So you actually don't fit into this environment at all. <laughs> and I said, well, how am I going to get out of this? And she said, you are going to get out of it. It's not going to be easy, but you are. And I said, well, I want to work in Amsterdam. I really feel that's where my like best self would live with Lewis in Amsterdam. And she said, no, you're going to go there. I see you signing a job contract. I'm like, well, I can't see this happening because there, it, there, it's just not a situation where I could even apply for a job. Like I don't, and she said, well, the way I see it is, it's sort of like you're you have you're on this on the, in North America and there's this iceberg and it's coming closer to you. And at a certain point, you're going to get on this iceberg and then it's just going to take you to Amsterdam and you're going to be working there. So I, I held on to that image in my mind, even though it seems so preposterous. And that was one part of it, like where I started to imagine that I didn't have to stay there and that I could actually leave. And then in my efforts to try to make it better, it kept getting worse. And I eventually took a leave of absence. And the reason I took a leave of absence is that my husband, Lewis, said, you know, 
you're becoming like out of it. Like you're so depressed right now that you're becoming kind of like, he didn't say catatonic, but he said, your eyes are glazed over. So he was actually worried about me. And he found a doctor and he's like, let's go to this doctor. He took me to the doctor and the doctor read some, some information, some letters that had come to me from my department chair where I was asking for less work because I was doing a lot of work and I was moving in multiple directions, which I'm really good at, but it was, it was too much. I was like a juggler and I had 12 balls, but I couldn't keep them all in the air, right? Like I, like I was constantly like reaching for one that was about to fall down and the department chair didn't really understand it that way. So I gave the letters from my department chair to this doctor and the doctor said, you know, this is not reasonable. And the department chair had said to me sort of famously in my story, oh, you know, everybody's working hard. And the truth of the matter, and I asked a colleague, like, does this look right to you? I showed him the work and he said, no, Dawn, no, everybody is not doing all of that. The doctor said to me, um, you know, this seems really unreasonable. And actually you're smiling as you tell this story, but I can see you're on the road to a breakdown, a burnout, like you're going for a work burnout right now. You're like, you're not going to be able to handle this for much longer. And it was February. So it was February of, I think, 2017 or 16. I can't remember what year it is now. I don't even want to think back to the accuracy of it, but I know I was teaching a class on literature and the art of flirtation. Couldn't keep everything going to keep, like, like I really wanted to keep teaching that class and just enjoy it, but I just couldn't do it. So the doctor basically said, so you're now finished with this semester. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm writing to human resources and human resources had already been involved. They knew I was going to a doctor. He said, I'm writing to them and I'm telling them that you're on leave now. So I was on leave and all of a sudden I was not working anymore for that semester. And so I started to experience the quiet of not having 40 emails in my box every time I opened up my email. I didn't have people asking me for anything. I wasn't supervising anybody. I didn't have any students. I was like, I didn't have people asking me for letters of recommendation. I wasn't on any committees. I wasn't the chair of anything. I was like just there in the world. And it was me and my husband. And eventually, after a month or so, we went to Amsterdam. <laughs> and then I was in Amsterdam and I taught a few classes, like just like guest, you know, guest lecture. I had a great time, but I really, I was like, stunned by how I was it was almost like if you've ever had like a like fainted or been in a car accident or something and you you're kind of in shock for a while and then you start waking up or like if you go out in the cold and you get frostbite I remember reading an article where a therapist talked about this like she talked about coming back to feeling after trauma is like it hurts like the the feeling comes back into your hands and you're like ouch so when you say that you were in spiraling into a depression was it clinically diagnosed as such? Yes. The person, I, the doctor I'm describing was a psychiatrist. I didn't go on drugs for it because he didn't think I needed them. What he thought the cure was, was getting me away from that situation, which was making me really depressed. Yeah. So I always like to differentiate for people. So there are those of us like me who suffer from depression with a capital D, which is biochemical, blah, blah, blah. And then there are many of us who will hit a point in their life and they'll find themselves in a state of depression with a small d, right? And I think what you're describing is a small d. But I want to ask the second part of that question, which is, so you were depressed and all of a sudden your world came to a stop. So I just recently quit a job and I've got time on my hands and I found myself spiring a little bit. You know, when somebody is so used to doing and being on the go and in a way like yourself 
I don't know, confidence, your self-validation is tied up to all of these things that you do, right? So how did you not allow that quiet to really spiral into something darker? Do you know what I mean? Like some people could end up feeling really lost. Well, so the first thing to say is capital D depression is what I experienced until I was in my mid-30s. And one of the reasons for it was that I had a thyroid problem, a pretty serious thyroid problem, which was completely undiagnosed. And when I went on thyroid medicine, my whole life changed. Like I could get out of bed in the morning, which I like when I saw you at Emerson College, every time I went to that school, I had dragged myself out of my bed to get there because I was that depressed. Right. And I'm sure it showed sometimes, but mostly I fought it. I thought that suit. I fought it. I fought it. But it was really difficult. And finally, a doctor, an endocrinologist, And he said, well, you're on the border of having hypothyroid. So let's just give you the drug and see what happens. And 28 days later, I had a period. Five days later, I was getting out of bed like, woohoo, here I am. And I could eat again. And also, I did not have the the happy childhood of anyone's dreams, like a lot of us, right? I had a pretty different childhood. My parents were really young when they had me, and they were both traumatized in their own ways. And they tried really hard, really hard, but they they were both really damaged people. And it's kind of a miracle how they made these three amazing, successful daughters, like really successful daughters with parents who really had to struggle hard, like like didn't have enough to eat. For example, my mom didn't have enough food when she was a kid and she was definitely horribly abused. And my dad had his own really bad stories of neglect and abuse and alcoholism in his family. So there's a lot of stuff in that past, but also the double load of having this thyroid problem. So when I did that psychoanalysis, I worked on the part that I just described about my childhood. And I kept saying to my analyst, like, it seems like I should be getting a little bit better. And I'm actually not getting that much better. And I feel like there must be some pill I could take. And we discussed antidepressants. I even tried one, didn't really help very much, stopped that. And then when I took the thyroid medicine, it suddenly was like my antidepressant. It made me feel much more. And that was when I was 35 years old. So that's the big D depression. And I was feeling some of those same feelings that I'd felt long before when I was having this career crisis. And when my doctor said, you know, you're headed for something bad if, you, if we don't stop. But one of the things that's really important here is I was in this really great job. The salary was good, really good. I had all these benefits. So the benefit that matters most here is I was being paid my entire full salary and I wasn't working at all. So imagine the cushion that that was, right? But at the same time, I was wondering what was going to happen next, right? Because I couldn't imagine going back there. So just by chance, the person who took over my job and started doing it was from another department. And almost immediately, he started having the same kinds of trouble with the department that I had had. And he's a very, like, really great manager, really balanced, no, like, I would just say he's a really wonderful person, wonderful administrator, right? So I think being characterized as someone who is like not such a good administrator, not that smart. That's how I was feeling. I was being characterized. And then therefore I could have done the job, but I just couldn't because of who I was. Suddenly he couldn't do it. He found it impossible to work with the same people. And so he managed to get the administration of the school to get the writing program removed from the English department. So they basically took the writing program and put it in its own place. And now it's functioning on its own. So then while I I left the stage, he took the stage, he did this amazing job. And then he told the administration, this is actually, this can't work. So we have to move the program out. And that happened. So while that was going on there, and I was in Amsterdam, I was still thinking, okay, so I can work in this new writing program. I could be under this guy and I could continue working 
at Brandeis, but I already had the taste of this other world, right? So I said to colleagues in Amsterdam, you know, I just really want to come here and work. And people are like, we want to have you here. We just have a wonderful community there. I'm really happy there. And so over time, I started to hear from people, basically the message, like, why don't you just do it? So essentially, over time, I figured out a way to leave Brenda to retire. So I basically said, like, I, I want to retire. And they like I, I was a full professor. When you have a full professor on a tenure line who's making a lot of money, it's a good, nice thing to hear that they want to retire. Yeah, because there's so many young, exactly. you know, all of us who are dying to get that job, right? And, and that's the pretty way to tell it. And the other way to tell it is there are also universities are becoming more more interested in hiring people at low salaries who don't, you know, so there's that piece too, right? Look at it from both directions. I would love to, to think of it from your perspective, like, oh, good. Now we can give the job to a talented younger person, right? Let's just imagine that that's what happened. I actually don't know literally what happened because I, I haven't followed the story that way. I, I don't, I kind of don't want to, like, I want to like leave that story. But in my own head, as far as stepping away, I've had to battle voices that are bad voices, right? That, that say to me like, well, you had to leave there because you just couldn't do it. Like you couldn't work hard enough. You weren't smart enough. You weren't like talented enough to deal with people that that still come to me, like that somehow there's something wrong with me. And if I had been better at it. And I remember talking to this really gifted psychiatrist that I talked to only a few times and he was so gentle and, and just brilliant. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I have read your work. I know who you are. And what you're describing to me is the vision of people who don't see you. I had to hear this because he, he knew what he saw in the world and he knew what he read. So he had evidence from the universe that didn't relate. Like I couldn't deny it. I couldn't say, no, I haven't published those books. No, I haven't given those talks. No, I haven't led those workshops because I had done all those things. But I was hearing stuff that was really different in my job and in my job environment that was challenging my core identity. So in other words, rather than saying that I learned to separate Dawn, the academic, from Dawn. It's sort of the opposite. I learned and I worked and I still work to embrace the fact that that person who published those books, who teaches those classes, who like gives these workshops and has like a, a file on her email from people who have gone out into the world and, and like done amazing things. That's me. Like that is me. What happened at Brandeis is there was a, there was a chance that I could lose her. Like I almost lost sight of who that person is. So the person that you were, that who taught you in the best light, like on a good, on the great day, whatever great day, whatever day would make you want to come back and talk to me more, that person is real. Like she, she wasn't like a facade. And I really felt that there were suggestions that that was not real. I actually started to believe it. I started to like think that's not me. I always talk about like the Greek chorus in the head, right? And I think women especially um, suffer from it being at a level that is <laughs> that is incredibly hard to ignore. So for our listeners, I'm sure they're going to hear this conversation and be like, wait, she's a professor. She was tenured. She's written. She's so smart. She's incredibly erudite, blah, blah, blah. How is it possible that she also has that same Greek chorus? I mean, like, can you address where you think for you that Greek chorus comes from, right? 
because you have all of the validations in the world as far as accomplishment and the things that you have accomplished, right? And yet you can't mute that, the sound in the head that is a, just a constant reel of you not being good enough, right? The first thing I'll say is I have a very loud Greek chorus still. And I, I have over, over time, and I'll tell you how and why, but over time, I've developed a couple of strategies that I think are working finally. But if a voice comes in and says, in 1986, you blah, 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 then I say, Dawn, Dawn. But I actually say that to myself many times a day. Now I go, Dawn, like, or like yesterday, you ate a piece of cake and that was a lot of cake and Dawn, stop it, have cake. I just like, I interrupt constantly, right? Like there are like things that come to mind that I think I could have done really differently and they come to mind every day, right? And, and we all have them. What I do is, is say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to put new grooves on that story, but I'm not proud of it. We all have them. And so and one other thing I do is I'm working harder at not letting people into my life who will deepen those grooves that are abusive, basically, that are that, that, those bad voices. And that's hard. That's hard. Yeah, I was going to say, so a lot of what you're describing, a lot of what you described at Brandeis is, and I'm not saying that this is gender biased, right? But like women's inability to set boundaries, right? And our our need to always please, right? So you probably couldn't draw the lines. And so it took a man, I hate to say this, but it took a man who they're so good at that, right? I mean, I, I raise a son, right? I have a husband. They're so good at that to be able to say, nope, this is not working and I'm going to, we're going to have to do X, Y, and Z, right? So I think what you're describing is that, but so in your personal life, because I'm asking out of curiosity, because this is something I've been struggling with and have thought a lot about since my relapse of my depression this summer. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. How do you do that? Like, how do you set those boundaries to draw the gates closed and to not let people in. And then more importantly, here's the second part of the question. How confident are you in your own discernment? How confident are you in your own discernment of your ability to say, ah, that's a red flag. That's a yellow flag. Therefore, that person or this situation should never come inside the gate, right? So some of what is is people who are already inside who need to get out. You need out. That's the biggest thing for me. So there are these feminist tarot cards called Mother Peace. I don't know whether you've ever seen. Oh, no. I love these cards. My friend Christy Jesperson from grad school introduced them to me in like 1989 when I was really depressed. And she, we would do these cards and they're beautiful cards. First of all, they're very artistic. But the card that has always spoken the most to me, I've taken as my mantra for this year coming up right now, which is a woman. She's in a room which has carpet all over the walls and there are candles and she's putting a carpet over the door. And it's basically called gaining control of your doorways, who you let in and who you keep out. And so one of the things I do is like you probably, I have like, I have a couple of friends of the soul, like who are so close. I have a couple of friends like Emily, especially Emily, but another friend I've known since I was in college at Boston College. And they're just like, Don, don't waste your time. And it's, that's what I need in my head, right? Because my tendency is like, oh no, well, they did this and they said this, but you know, I should want, and they're like, no, no, no. And it's painful because some of the people we're talking about who need to be on the outside are people that I basically would cut out my heart for and I hand it to them. And then they say, you know, insanity is trying to do it again and have, have, a, have a better result. 
I have done so much of that in my life. I mean, I'm 57 almost. And I could give you like, sit here and tell you a hundred times when I did things like, you know, go back and try to do it better this time. And it does, it never works out better. It never does. So there's a lot of it. I would say my main strategy is identifying as much as possible what is working against my higher self and then not letting it in. And then if it, if I need to get it out, working really hard to get it out, which is basically about taking a lot of space and not engaging, but it's not simple for me. And the, and the most important piece of it for me is this thing, this work with the voices that I think I agree, women have them more. And I think like working against the voices for me is like an hourly job, like, you know, stuff like that, like things that are just about like basic things. Do not let poison into your life because you're going to be, you're going to feel bad, whether it's a poison that you ingest or a poison of someone's words that come into your ears and make you feel bad. That's a lovely place to end. So I'm going to ask the last question. So the question I'm going to ask you is if there is one song that either resonates with you or in some way feels as if describing your life, what would that song be and why? There's a song that someone introduced to me when I around right before I got on thyroid medicine. I was really depressed and I was I was ending a 12 year relationship and I was really not sure how I was going to go on in this life. I was really down. And she told me about Dar Williams, who I'd never heard before. And she has a song called After All. And there are so many pieces of that song that resonate for me. But the most important part of it is, she says, when I chose to live, there was no joy. It's just a line I crossed. And for me, that really captures like basically how I made some of the most important decisions in my life and also how I try to live. Like it might not be joyful, but I've crossed the line and I'm choosing this life. That's beautiful. All right. So if people want to get in touch with you, and then can you tell us where it is that you're actually teaching in Amsterdam? Well, I teach at Amsterdam University College now, which is a really lovely place. I just got a full-time contract last year. I love that place. I love the people I work with so much. And so you can contact me there. But also I still, I retired from Brandeis. That's one of the best things that happened, which is I said to them, I'll retire. And they let me retire. So at dawnscore at brandeis.edu will always be my email. So you should contact me that way. And I love talking to people. So, you know, there's lots more to my story that I couldn't say because I was telling it this way, but I'd be only too thrilled to talk to other people. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it, I'ma say this because. We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.